Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Happy Friday, everyone, and welcome to episode 20 of The Snyder Cut. I am your handsome host, Jeff Snyder, and we don't really have a lot of time to spare here. We've got a jam-packed show, so let's jump in. I feel like this week the entire world has started taking crazy pills. Like, all these fake internet controversies popping up that are just nonsense. Just meaningless garbage. I'm sorry. You know what? Let's start on, on, a, on a lighter note with the, the worst of the year, worst of the decade list. Did you know that it's very uncool to post these now? Yeah, I don't know if you guys got the memo overnight. All of a sudden, you're a hack if you do this, or just a mean-spirited dick. Except... Except that's not true, and you're, it's all bullshit. Like, I cannot believe th- that people are coming out th- now and, and saying, oh, well, you know, do you have to do worst of the year list? Like, it's just so not cool, guys. Give me a break. Are people allowed to have fun anymore? If you don't like those kind of lists, you don't have to read them. Don't click on them. Just ignore them. Can anybody ignore anything anymore? Anything? Or do we, does everybody have to weigh in on everything? And I know that's ironic coming from me, believe me. But, like, when Christopher McQuarrie is like, you know, well, these critics have never made anything. It's just mean-spirited. They've never made anything. It's like, well, I, I don't hear that when when every critic is lining up to say that the Mission Impossible movies are amazing. I don't hear Chris McQuarrie saying, well, critics have never made anything, so, so who cares what they think? It's only when critics think something is bad does the critics have never made anything argument come into it. And it's stupid because, you know what, most critics have made things. You just haven't seen them. Maybe they made short films as kids. Maybe they made student films as college. I'm, better, I'm willing to bet that some of those are better than some of the professional direct that gets made. You know, like I, I loved seeing that. It was a rude awakening for me when I was reading scripts back in my development days because, you know, you'd think that because something has an agency cover on it, then it's been vetted and someone of taste has said, oh, no, you are, you are worthy of having our brand on your, on your cover page. Um, it's not the case. You know, I read so much crap with an agency cover on it. I just, I, I, I don't understand uh, why all of a sudden worst of the year, worst of the decade things are, are, are no longer allowed. Nope, they're, they're banned. They've been canceled because someone's feelings could be hurt. Someone, someone you know, spent hours and years maybe of their life uh, uh, you know, putting this movie together, and people work so hard. Can't you respect that? Can't you appreciate that? Like, that's what art is. You put yourself out there to be judged, and sometimes it's going to be good, and sometimes it's going to be bad. And you can you, you got to just be able to laugh it off. I mean, some of the, the worst of the year picks or, or worst of the decade lists are, are amusing, you know, like because they just clearly reflect the, uh, you know, the, the critics' own... You know, uh, the buttons that you can push to, to, to make a critic freak out. Like, you know, I'm not, I'm not here arguing that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was one of the worst films of the year. That's absurd. It was a very, very good movie that gets just goes off the rails in, in its last act. Owen Gleiberman had the balls to put uh, the last 30 minutes of the movie on his worst of the year list. Like, that's funny and, and, and frankly, deserving. Like, I, that, that last 30 minutes was out of a different movie. Uh, so I, I respect uh, Owen's opinion on that one. Other ones, 
again, it's just so sad to see glass go over everybody's head. I, I couldn't believe Peter DeBruge put that on his, his worst of the year list. But, again, just because the trade says something doesn't mean it's it's true. You're allowed to still have your opinion after this. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't make them a hack because they came up with this list. Give me a break. What other ridiculous controversies were there this week? Richard Jewell. How about this one? I mean, th- this is like getting out of hand. This is like that's now ever that that's now what everyone is talking about is this sex scene that isn't a sex scene, this quid pro quo scene that isn't a quid pro quo scene. No one's talking about Richard Jewell. No one's talking about what happened to this guy. So let me break this controversy down for you. There's a scene in the movie that people are taking issue with because it implies that Kathy Scruggs, the the actual reporter at the AJC who broke this story, had traded sex for information. She had slept with a source, except that there's no evidence to prove that she did that. And her, you know, not even her editor, the editor of the AJC, the Atlanta uh, Journal-Constitution or Constitution or whatever the hell the, uh, the Atlanta paper is, he's up in arms. He wasn't around for any of this, but now he has to uh, defend his paper's reporting. There's nothing to defend, okay? The paper did its job. Kathy Scruggs did her job. The FBI was investigating Richard Jewell. She reported that, that this investigation w- was underway, and that's the end of it. People, the public, they rushed that to that assumption that, oh, because this guy is being investigated, he must have been the one who did it. Because he's a suspect, he must be guilty. Except it didn't turn out to be like that at all. But she isn't responsible for those public assumptions. So I have no issue with how she acted or how, frankly, the Atlanta paper acted. So I don't, I don't even know what Billy Ray is getting all up in arms in, about. However, it's not sex for info. Because she gets the info before they have sex. Now, she can walk away at that point. She has the name Richard Jewell. She got the tip. She doesn't need to follow through with any sexual favors. She got what she wanted. Normally, in quid pro quo scenarios, it's have sex with me and I will give you the information that you seek. That would have been a completely different thing. But she she gets the name by asking, by leading him on whatever it is. She uses her, her sexuality as a weapon, which by many accounts, that's what this actual Kathy Scruggs did. And then... It's implied that they go off and have sex. L- let me tell you a few things here. I mean, <laughs> do you know how many times I've planned to go have sex and then it didn't work out? You know, like, we don't even know that these two had sex, ended up having sex in the next scene. Because it's not shown. The audience just assumes they did. Just like readers assume that Richard Jewell was guilty. That's the problem. I see a woman doing her job and doing it well, gets the tip. That's all that, like, that is all that it matters. This whole ethics thing, ethics go out the window when you're trying to get something like that. I'm sorry. You don't don't think I I would pull some some shady shit to find out who who was going to star in Batman or or Star Wars or whatever? Because I would. It was, I feel like it's slut-shaming. Not to call Kathy Scruggs a slut, that's just the term. But I see two consensual adults doing what they want to do. No one's a no one. John Ham's not like, well, I gave you the tip. Now you have to have sex with me. 
she was grabbing his junk before she even gets the name. So maybe she grabs the junk and then he his his junk and he says, "You know what? I can't give it to you." Like how does that make that quid pro quo? Maybe she's just attracted to him. After all, the FBI agent looks like John fucking Ham. And do you know how many reporters end up falling for their subjects? It doesn't. It's not the worst thing that a journalist can do. I, I did see those quotes from one of Kathy Scruggs' uh, colleagues. What, it would be the worst thing you can do to a journalist is, is suggest that she slept with a source. Is that the worst thing you can do? Really? How about the? How about a journalist who just I don't know makes things up entirely? That seems like a pretty bad thing, uh, a bigger line cross than just sleeping with with someone who maybe gave you some information at one point. Like, I, I, like, and Billy Ray wrote that movie. He wrote Shattered Glass about a journalist who just made stuff up. I think he would know. Do you know how many reporters end up falling for subjects? Look at Kevin Smith's wife, Jen Schwalbach. She was interviewing him. He's the subject of her piece. They end up having sex, getting married. Look at Jason Blum's wife, a, a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Like, I'm sorry, that that's uh, Amy Pascal's husband, Bernie, uh, who was at the New York Times. Like, after the fact, you recuse yourself, you know, uh, you say, okay, well, I'm not going to report on, on Kevin Smith or Jason Blum or, or Amy Pascal anymore because, you know, I'm in a relationship with that person. That, that, that would be an ethical violation. But what Kathy Scruggs did, I mean, uh, you know, her, her, her colleagues said that, that the movie makes her out to be immoral. Well, let me ask you this. What is breaking into a lawyer's car if not felonious behavior? That's a felony. That's breaking and entering. And then she refuses to leave when Sam Rockwell is begging her, yelling at her to get out of the car. I've never snuck into somebody's car before for a story. That is trespassing. It is breaking and entering. It is a felony. So is that worse? That's criminal behavior. Sleeping with someone is not criminal behavior. It may be an ethical violation. But, like, you know, you had one, uh, one of the colleagues saying, if I'd find out that she'd slept with someone, you know, she would have been fired within 24 hours. There's a lot of people who who wouldn't make that decision, who would say, oh, my God, this woman got – she broke the Richard Jewell story. You know, she put us on the map. She's selling all these papers. Who, who cares what she had to do to get it? And I realize that I practice trade journalism, which isn't exactly, you know, uh, political reporting or, or criminal reporting for the New York Times or or anything like that, but, like – I'm sorry. It's naive to suggest that the corners aren't cut like this all the time. Um, and again, we don't know that she did sleep with him. We Here's the other thing. We don't know that she didn't. Everyone's say, saying, well, there's no evidence to prove that there was, uh, that, that there was anything like that. There's, you can't say that, that there's not. I mean, she, she's dead. I don't think it impugns her, her reputation. I don't think people are leaving this movie saying... Well, that Richard Jewell, it was a shame what he went through. But how about that journalist? Like, she was just awful. I mean, th- this was a woman who dressed provocatively and was very flirtatious and, and aggressive with men for, by, by almost all accounts, who also admitted to having relationships, personal relationships, with people in law enforcement, with people in the police department, who she covered. Like, 
like these just things don't seem to be in dispute. So whether she had sex with this particular FBI agent after that particular tip, I, I, I don't know. But neither do you. Neither does this editor who's putting his entire reputation on the line. Uh, like this guy, Riley, I, I think he's, he comes off looking like an idiot. Like uh, if I were him, just focus on your job, which is to make sure that people believe the stories that the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are reporting going forward. Don't th- risk your entire job defending this woman and this incident from 25 years ago who you didn't even know, you didn't work with. Uh, I, I just here, here's the other thing with this, and, and people saying, "Well, it's wrong. You know, she's dead. She can't defend herself. This is, this is a terrible thing to, to do to her after the fact." I'm sorry, but this is a very, 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 very. I want to use another very five varies a very dangerous precedent to set. If every movie based on a true story is subject to these kinds of uh, claims of veracity and accuracy, like uh, these are these are movies. Their their number one goal is to entertain. It's not to tell the true story. It's not to, it's not a documentary. It's not a report in the New York Times. I mean, I, I think that Billy Ray probably practiced an active journalism. A lot of movies based on true stories are acts of journalism, but they're not actual journalism. That's the difference. Spotlight tells a, a, a true story, but like I'm sure it takes certain liberties. You know, for dramatic effect, and that's what they're trying to cut. That's what they're trying uh, to to do with this depiction of Kathy Scruggs, which is to show that this is a woman who would go to any lengths for the story. And that is Clint Eastwood's and Billy Ray's take on it. And if you don't like it, don't see the movie. But to say that it's completely, uh, you know, horrible and this mo- whole movie should be dismissed because of this is absurd, and it's an offensive suggestion. I think I think Richard Jewell was really really good. I thought that Olivia Wilde's performance was a little big. Yeah, you know, I may not have liked how they wrote Kathy Scruggs on the page, but it, you don't just throw the movie out or start demanding disclaimers and things like that because you know this this this, this allegation is made that that can't be proven. Like uh, it's, I don't think Billy Ray goes around calling himself a journalist. I don't think we can ex- expect that same level of accuracy. From him, given that his primary goal is to entertain. I just don't think that that makes her look terribly immoral. You know, but, but you know, I, I, I've done things myself. Like, I, I don't know. If, if having consensual sex is the worst thing, then, then lock me up. Because everyone is a potential source, right? I, I, I just... Uh, yeah, the Richard Jewell thing is really frustrating because I feel like it's a, it's a good movie, and because and because it was made by Clint Eastwood, you know, it used to, it was going to be made by Ezra Edelman at one point, but because it's at Clint Eastwood, everyone brings their Eastwood baggage to it, and this guy's a Republican, and he just he's a, he's a Trump crony, and uh, he, he just wants to take down the media and the FBI. Like, no, like the FBI rushed to judgment. This guy fit a certain profile. In certain respects, he fit the profile, and then and then there were these leaps, these leaps made. And it, you know, the FBI has you have to investigate everybody when there's a, an act of domestic terrorism like that. 
maybe it took a little while to clear them. Maybe, maybe I think there were some obvious things that the movie shows, like the time uh, it takes, you know, with the telephone and like the, the record of the call. Like it's obviously not his voice. He couldn't have even gotten to the, the, the phone, you know, in that amount of time. Did he have a, a co-conspirator? There's no evidence to suggest any of that kind of stuff. But uh, you, you can see how he fell under suspicion. So the FBI is just doing its job. You know, Kathy Scruggs is just doing her job by reporting what the FBI is doing. Like, I don't know why everybody is just so bent out of shape. And I don't know that Billy Ray saying, well, they're using this issue to, to brush aside, you know, their own reporting or whatever. Like, it doesn't make anybody look good. Like, the the movie should just – the movie's a movie, and it should speak for itself. You know? It's, it's not really any different than all this Star Wars stuff where it's like Star Wars hasn't even come out. I already know half the things that happen in the movie because people are just talking about it in this press interviews. The press can't help themselves from asking. And it's just this back and forth about Last Jedi. We're still talking about Ryan Johnson's The Last Jedi. It's so silly. Tune all this stuff out. Which brings me to my next rant. There are going to be a lot of rants on this episode. The Golden Globes director controversy. Oh, my God. Guys, grow the fuck up. Grow up. Every year, there, there are women snubbed. Every year, there are men snubbed. There's only five slots. That's all there is. If you, like, Sasha Stone did the best writing about this, uh, you know, this week, and, and that's because she's a woman. And if a man had written the exact same column with the exact same words, it wouldn't be taken nearly as seriously. Women aren't getting nominated. Like, the work is there this year. The farewell, and I think you guys heard me talk about this on FYC, and and I got emotional talking about it because I knew, like, people are going to misconstrue this and and yada, yada, yada. The farewell is one of the best movies I've seen this year. It's easily a top five movie of the year. It's better than The Irishman. It's better than Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's better than 1917. But you don't come out of that movie talking about the direction. As great as everything that that Lula Wong did, and she tied it all together, it doesn't. It's not the kind of movie that lends itself to a best director nomination. And frankly, this is just the truth. Women, either they're not being given the opportunity to make those kinds of flashy movies, or that's just not the kinds of movies that these women want to make. And I'm not saying they don't want to make blockbusters or superhero movies because they uh, they do, they do. And they're taking more of those jobs. And you're seeing, you know, next year, four of the biggest super uh, comic book movies directed by women. Black Widow, uh, Eternals, uh, uh, Birds of Prey, like, you know, uh, and, and, and Wonder Woman 84. Like, they are directing big movies. None of those movies are going to be nominated for Best Director either, I hate to tell you. So, they're, you know, like, The Irishman, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, 1917, those are the kinds of movies that lend themselves to a Best Director nomination, or if not a Best Director nomination, then at least the kind of buzz that that Best Director nominees typically get. So it's like, you know, when and, and not to mention, so there's Lulu Wong and there's Greta Gerwig and Mariel Heller, right? I feel like, you know, Meryl Heller's A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood was also a top 10 movie. I saw Little Women last night. I thought it was fine. Uh, it was good. She did a good job. I, I don't think she should really be in the best director conversation. Um, but, 
you know, let, let's for now, let's just say Lulu Wong, Greta Gerwig, that's who we're talking about when we're talking about these snubs. The coverage that then goes on to list all the female directors this year who have been overlooked, like, that isn't helpful to anybody. When you're saying, well, Lulu Wong wasn't nominated and, and neither was Elizabeth Banks. Well, no shit. Charlie's Angels was never going to get a Best Director nomination. I mean, it's it's crazy some of the stuff that I read this week. People suggesting that women should have their own category, and and the L.A. excuse me, the Hollywood Critics uh, Awards, which is the L.A. Online Film Critics Society, like saying, oh well, that that that's why we're needed, and 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 because we have a Best Female Filmmaker uh, Award. Good for you guys. You know, I'm I'm happy about it. It is completely ass backwards. Like direction should be above gender. And it's not because that's not about the roles being written for you or like I understand separating actors and actresses to to institute a female director award would be such a slap in the face. That's not what equality is. It does. The award's not for best male director. It's her best director, and it should be open to all genders, and it is open to all genders. So when they're saying, well, you know, how could all of this good work be overlooked, right? Because women had a great year. Every year, a a ton of male movies are overlooked. That's that's the name of the game. You want to play with the big boys, like, there are only five slots. Should a woman be guaranteed one of these five slots so that everybody can pat themselves on the back at the end of the day? What a fucking offensive suggestion. Even on FYC, I, you know, I was talking about it with Perry, and Perry sees things from my way, I think. But she you know, said something. Well, you know, there has to be. There has to be a woman in the mix. There should be, you know, and, and maybe there will be. But there has to be? Why? Why? Is it possible? Let me just, just riddle me this. Is it possible that five men could have directed the five best movies of the year? Not to mention, it's not who directed the best movies of the year it's best director the the quality of the movie has nothing to do with it unfortunately otherwise i think the farewell would be in pretty easily but again it's just not the kind it's the sort of thing like marriage story marriage story is is another sort of movie where it's like you don't come out of that being like well it wasn't the the direction superb you think of it as wasn't that a great story that i that i was told isn't that a great script and that's why marriage story is getting more buzz for best screenplay, same thing with the farewell. More than best director, I—that's I, not how I see things. I want to reward directors, you know, for for coming up with a great movie or or having a great story, which I don't think, you know, The Irishman wasn't particularly satisfying for me. Once upon a time, a time in Hollywood wasn't particularly satisfying for me. The farewell was. I left that movie, you know, on like a total high. Like buzzing because it, it it made me exit the theater with a smile on my face, yet I still had like tear stains on my cheeks. I, I don't think it's even, it's not like a gender thing. It's about what is your movie about? You know, and, and women tend to make softer, gentler movies. Um, and, and maybe that those just aren't, that's not what is resonating with, with members right now. Like people look back at Catherine Bigelow. What did she win for? Did she win for a movie like The Farewell or Queen and Slim or A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood? No. She fucking won the Oscar for The Hurt Locker, which was like the most masculine, one of the most masculine movies ever made. So it's, I don't think that, I really don't think voters care what is between your legs. 
It is about what movie and what kind of movie you're making. People see 1917 uh, with its one shot, uh, you know, they try to believe you, lead you to believe that it's all done in one shot. Or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is this nearly three-hour sort of epic thing, uh, this tour through old Hollywood. Or The Irishman, which is a three-and-a-half-hour epic People would say masterful look, uh, you know, at crime. And, and like those are the kinds of things that resonate with voters or that people think of or train to think of it as, as best picture, best director nominees. If Lulu Wong had directed The Irishman, Lulu Wong would have a nomination. Instead, she made a better movie that just doesn't feel as epic. You know what I mean? It's, a li- it's, it's smaller. It's more intimate. It's more universal. And, and that's why it's a better movie. But it's not the kind of thing that's recognized. And and people don't seem to understand that that is what the Best Director Award is. Like, God, I I just have so much to say. Melina Matsukas, the the Queen and Slim director, we talked about this on Movie Talk this morning. People didn't watch your movie? How do you know? Because that's what Universal's telling you when Universal failed to get you a nomination? Like... Oh, well, Melina, it's not your fault. You made a great movie, and, and you know how hard we worked on it. But people people want to see what they want to see, and they didn't watch ours. You don't even know that because four people who show up to, to the screening, right, out of 90 people, maybe the other 80 people are watching a screener at home. And, yeah, maybe five didn't see it because it's at the bottom of the pile, and they ran out of time by the time the voting deadline was. That's another thing. People don't understand. It's not like a, a refusal to, to watch the movie. There's only time to watch so many movies. Perry and I are professionals. We can't get through all the movies. There's still a ton of movies I haven't seen. You don't hear those directors bitching and moaning about how, well, no one considered us because we weren't nominated. You don't know if you weren't considered. It's, it's just uh, crazy. And, and Melina Matsuka's coming out saying, well, your, your time is over, HFPA. And, and, you know, Alma Harrell, who, I'm sorry, came off like a fucking psychopath this week, like... Alma Harrell not doing herself any favors. Uh, like the, I don't think I, I'm pretty sure you can you can bet money that she will never be nominated for a Golden Globe after what she said this week. And it's not that what she said was wrong. You know, like yeah, this is ninety some odd foreign journalists who. I mean, like why do we why do we care so much what what these ninety journalists think? Why? Because they have their award show. It has a fucking TV deal, a contract with NBC. Like, that's the only reason the Golden Globes matter, because they're televised. Here's what I think will happen with all of this noise this week around the, the best director issue. I think it actually will matter when it, when it comes to Oscars. That will be, that'll be the real test to see if anybody was listening. And these organizations are becoming more female. Like, does anybody poll the female members? Maybe the female members are the ones voting for Tarantino and Scorsese. Because there's enough of them now where if they did just get together and say, you know, we're going to use our, our, our voice as women to, to elevate one of our own, like, then that person should have the votes. But I don't want to see that happen. I don't want it to, there to be this, this block voting and you have, to, you have to win over the female vote. I'd like to think that women are just voting for what their favorite movies are, what the best movies are. They're not thinking about who made these movies. And I don't think we should. But yeah, Alma Harrell, unless we have a new category for women directors, the same way we have separate actor and actress categories, we won't see any changes. 
wow, that is a bleak assessment of your own gender. Like, maybe you're, maybe there will be women making awesome movies that are undeniable, and they'll get in the, the one of the final five slots. Maybe they'll get all five slots next year. I don't know. Alma Harrell, like, just throwing her gender right under the bus. A new category for women directors. No, that would be the absolute worst thing you could do. If you really wanted to see some change or, or, you know, elicit some change, then because there are 30 actors, I think, nominated for awards at the Golden Globes, and there are 10 pictures nominated, I agree. Best director kind of gets squeezed. There's 10 writing nominees too, right? Original and adapted. But there's no, there's no dis- distinguisher for best director. There's no separator the way almost everything else has. So maybe the Golden Globes and maybe later the Oscars will expand from a hard five to a hard seven or eight directors. And then you'll see more female directors getting in that. I mean, who's to say whether it's not one of the first five slots? But you'd like to think that some may be just barely missing out on these nominations. And the people who are in that sixth, seventh, eighth slot, well, now you're in. And, and it's not like you know the public knows what is the sixth, seventh, and eighth slot. They just see nominations. So maybe that is the answer, is expanding the category to seven or eight nominees. I don't think that 10 is the answer. I think you would do it gradually. Because I think that the Oscars did that to a hard 10. And then, well, what if there aren't even like, you know, 10 people who are really deserving? So they went to a soft 10, which really means nine, because, you know, mathematically, it'll be almost impossible for there to be 10 Best Picture nominees. So, you know, Best Director, they they may actually want to consider going from, from a hard five to a hard seven or eight, but... I just I could not believe some of the things that I was reading this week from both people in the industry who should know better about how this stuff works. And if they don't know better, maybe they should bring me on as a goddamn consultant and I'll explain to you how it works. Maybe the studios are giving these people uh, too high of expectations. But the other thing is just journalists who don't understand awards and how the awards game is played. They don't understand what the best director award is actually for. They just take everything so literally. Um, yeah, man. Okay, we we can move on and, and move to news. But th- those were three things that really fucking pissed me off this week. Richard Jewell, the Golden Globes director controversy, and the backlash against worst of the year lists. Like, give me a fucking break, guys. This was another one. Netflix got busted. Uh, or they're in the news in the Washington Post for uh, flying critics' choice voters all over. You know, like, they were, they were a currying favor, and that's how they got twice as many nominations as everybody, despite the fact that they have, like, twice as many movies. Um, listen, every studio does that. It's not just Netflix, and it's not just Critics' Choice voters, okay? And the problem isn't even Netflix doing it or other studios. The problem is the fucking journalists, guys. You gotta say no to this stuff. And I realize that your coverage is going to suffer. You're not going to get as many clicks because you're not going to have the access because you can't afford to send reporters everywhere. But that is, I'm sorry, that is what news judgment is all about. There's no news judgment anymore. That's why everything gets picked up. Every stupid fucking quote about Scorsese and Marvel, it becomes an article on, on, on a site. Every little thing that anybody says is, is, is fodder for the mill. If, if sites just reduced half the workload, it may mean getting rid of a bunch of talented writers. I'd be fine by me. 
This is a, a meritocracy. It's not just give everybody a job so they can write about the dumbest shit on earth. So editors-in-chiefs have to say, listen, you know, I think that this is a really big movie, Star Wars, and uh, or, or let's just say it's Jumanji. You know, Jumanji really clicks with our audience. We want to have the interviews with The Rock and Kevin Hart. We are going to spend the money to send a reporter to, to Hawaii if that's where your junket is. We think it's worth the investment. That is what... That is what uh, needs to happen because accepting the free trip from the studio comes with strings. And you, and you may say, no, 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 like I, I've been sent places and I'll still give them a bad review or whatever. And it's like, maybe you will, maybe, but I, I don't think people are as principled as I am. I think that in the back of most people's heads, it is a quid pro quo kind of thing. And they're afraid to, to speak their truth or to give their honest opinions if they're being sent all over the world. And I'll be frank, Collider is guilty of the, as guilty of this as anybody. You know, I, I know people who have gone to, to London three or four times this year for different junkets. I know people who have filmmakers as guests on their podcasts, they don't even like the movie. So then what is the person doing there? Why is the person on your podcast? It's because the studio offered them, and you want to look good to the studio, and, and you want to ingratiate yourself with the studio. So you say, yeah, absolutely, have them on. And listen, I've done it too. We all have to do it. But it doesn't mean I can't call it out when I see it. Like, if you thought the movie sucked, why are you promoting it and telling everyone who listens to your show to see it? Ostensibly, I assume you're not having the filmmaker on and then saying, actually, though, this movie sucks. Don't see it. You're, you're lying through your teeth and you're saying, thanks for coming on. It was so great. Your movie was so wonderful. Congratulations. Everybody check it out on Friday. And I just don't have that in me, guys. I, 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 I do not have the phony thing. And I'll tell you a real world story. I went to the Fox Searchlight holiday party last week. Thank you for the invite, Fox Searchlight. I've been going to Fox Searchlight holiday parties for a long time. Guys, I can't do it anymore. I'm done. I, I lasted 20 minutes at this party. Part of it w- was that there was, like, no food. And, like, and I know that makes me sound like I'm complaining. But the other part of it is just, like, this is not for me. I am above this. I, I, I've done the schmooze thing. You know, I've met who I need to meet, really, for the most part. Um, yeah, I don't need to be at these holiday parties, uh really just with other journalists because hardly any talent or executives even show up anymore like i can't i can't do it i, I cannot be a phony i'm i'm too old for that shit so uh, there's still a lot of people who who maybe aren't at my level and so they do still have to play that game and do the dance but i i can't so you you won't get any of that shit here um, let's talk about the news. Let's let's get a little bit more positive. Jonathan Groff broke the news. Uh, I broke the news this week that Jonathan Groff from Mindhunter and Frozen has joined the cast of The Matrix Four. We still have no idea what this uh, what the plot of The Matrix Four is, where it's going. I'm pretty sure the reports that have Guy Abdul Mateen the second, who's so great as Doctor Manhattan on Watchmen. Uh, I'm pretty sure that those reports having play, having him play uh, young Morpheus are are going to be proven correct. Uh, that is certainly what I've heard. Um, it's funny. I'd heard that Jonathan Graff, that this role was 
made like they were out to like some comedic talent for it that they were looking for like a comic actor. But then I heard I think Leah Michelle did some interview where she said she'd known about this for for a while. She'd had to keep the secret, and she knows everything about Matrix Four and blah 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 blah. And she sort of implied that he would be playing a bad guy. She's like, oh, well, it, you know, Jonathan just plays the nicest guy and uh, on screen for the most part, and um, and so it's nice to see people play against type. I think that's you know close to what she said. So I wonder if he is going to be an agent. He obviously looks the part based on you know what we've seen from him in Mindhunter. Um, but then again, I thought Neil, Neil Patrick Harris was going to be uh, the villain, and, and maybe he could be an agent. It'd be crazy if the two of them were teaming up. You know, if there was no Mister Smith, so to speak, but there were these two, you know, two two, uh, two other agents. Who are the guys running the agent program? Like, I don't know. That stuff would be interesting. But again, I have no idea what Lana Wachowski is planning to answer or address in this fourth Matrix movie. I'm just glad Jonathan Groff, you know, had booked it. Um, it's funny. I'm going to let you guys in on some inside baseball. I'm fucking going for it this week. It's like I I got the tip on Friday. And I reached out to Groff's publicist, and I think she was traveling. So the assistant's like, you know, I can leave word. And I was like, yeah, you know, it's fine. I'll, I'll shoot her an email. But it was Friday night. So I, I you know, it, it slipped my mind. I forgot. Another call came in, whatever. I didn't send the email. Uh, and, you know, so, so Monday morning I was planning to circle back, follow up. Hey, what's going on with Jonathan Groff? You know, I, I think she probably knew what I was calling about. Um <laughs> I'll explain why in a second. But, you know, if you were – if I was ever a publicist and I got a call from a top-level reporter and I knew something was brewing, I might call that reporter back and say, hey, I heard you called about Jonathan on Friday. Sorry, Mr. Call. What's up? Didn't get that call. What I did get was uh, confirmation from a second source, independent confirmation, saying that what I had was legitimate. So I send Groff's publicist a heads-up email before publishing, like, hey – just just so you know, we're going to be you know publishing this story in a few minutes. Wanted to let you know, and I get this email back that's just like you know freaking out like this isn't this isn't confirmed. Blah 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 blah. I'm like, well, you know, I I have someone I trust saying that it is true. It's going to work out. It is confirmed. You know, as far as I uh, as far as I'm concerned, um, and you know, I go back and forth a couple times, and then they say, well, that's that's just shitty. That's shitty, Jeff. If I ever, like, was started cursing at publicists, like, oh, yeah, I, I would get fired, and I did get fired. I got fired a couple of times for uh, the way that I talked to agents and publicists who can, apparently can talk to press however the hell they want. It's not like uh, I'm going to report them to the head of the agency. It's not like the head of the agency or studio is going to take my calls, but it's real easy to call or, or, and a, a reporter's editor-in-chief. So, yeah, this publicist comes back at me, starts cursing. Well, that's real shit. What is shitty about it? Why, if I got the confirmation from someone independently that said Jonathan Groff's doing this movie, what do I need to wait for you to tell me the same fucking thing? I don't need two people telling me today's Friday. You know what I mean? I don't need a publicist to confirm that it's sunny outside. Uh, so it, it's just fucking infuriating dealing with these people. It really is. Because like, I thought I was being nice by giving you a heads up. If you don't want a heads up going forward, you can read the news at the same time as everybody else and have a lot of explaining to do to your clients. <sighs> Benioff and Weiss. D.B. Weiss, David Benioff, the Game of Thrones guys, just signed a huge 
nine-figure deal with Netflix who gave him like half a billion dollars to make stuff for them. And so what do they do? They turn around they go make a Warner Brothers movie about H.P. Lovecraft. Brilliant. Brilliant investment. God. I'm glad I'm not a Netflix uh, shareholder. I mean, I wish I was back in the day, but not anymore now that they're uh, drowning in billions of dollars of debt. Um, This Lovecraft movie, it actually sounds interesting. It's set in a world where, you know, Lovecraft's creatures are legitimate. You know, maybe it could be interesting. It sounds a bit like Goosebumps, like the author's creations are coming to life. In this case, they're, they're, they're not coming to life. They're actually just real. But, yeah, movies about authors, uh, not that exciting. Uh, Case in point, Tolkien. I mean, this guy wrote Lord of the Rings. Remember Anonymous, the Shakespeare movie? Uh, Yeah, Shakespeare, Tolkien, it doesn't really get bigger than those guys, and nobody went to see those movies. So I don't think anybody's going to see this Lovecraft movie either. Sure, it may have cool monsters in it, uh, you know, but, like, so, so do Crimson Peak. Like, I'm so like, who, who is making these fucking choices? Um, and and I love that Karen Kusama's involved. Like, that's what made me perk up. Uh, Phil Hay, Matt Manfredi are writing the script. Apparently, according to Kroll uh, on Twitter, uh, Weiss and Benioff have not decided whether they're going to direct this or whether they're going to simply produce. If I were Netflix, if I was Netflix, I'd be like, how in he- the hell are you guys going to direct this? Like, your next directing thing should absolutely be for us. I'd be. I'd tear up that contract if it wasn't. But is this what I want to see from those guys? Not necessarily. I thought they're like world builders. Now they're just going to take this other world that H.P. Lovecraft built. Like, I mean, I know that obviously Game of Thrones was based on books, but you know they veered pretty significantly uh, from the books as well. Either way, just strange. Just a strange thing to go over to Warner Brothers and make a Lovecraft movie and not do it at Netflix where you'd probably get a bigger budget to do it. Um, a weird pairing. Benioff and Weiss with Karen Kusama and her writing guys. Um, now, if Kusama ended up directing that movie, I would pay to see that. She She's awesome. Um... Speaking of the Matrix 4, though, that got a release date. The Flash got a release, a release date. So Warner Brothers is insisting that that movie is, is happening uh, with Ezra Miller. And then Shazam 2 got a release date in April uh, 2022. That's one week before the Spider-Verse sequel, which seems stupid to me. Um, I think the Spider-Verse, just that movie went over really well. And I think a sequel is going to potentially do even better. Um, and... I just wouldn't to have one week to yourself before you got to take on that movie. And I know the release calendar is tough. Like Disney's dropping bombs like every other weekend, but might've given myself a little bit more space there. Uh, this movie also arrives less than four months after black Adam. I don't know how directly the two will be linked uh, if at all, but, uh, but yeah, DC moving, moving full steam ahead. It's, it's, I saw somebody uh, point out. It's interesting. All these DC movies, uh, including the ones in development and whatnot, they all have titles except for the Batman, which makes which makes me think it's not going to be called the Batman. I think it, you know, they're probably going to stick another uh, subtitle on. Hopefully, it'll be better than Dawn of Justice or whatever the hell the last ones were. Um, I did a story this week on Alex Brightman. This is a guy you're probably not aware of, but he is on Broadway right now playing Beetlejuice. He also he got a Tony nomination for that. He got a Tony nomination for playing uh, 
the Jack Black role in the School of Rock musical adaptation. He has uh, been cast as John Belushi in an indie movie that has got... The last movement on this was like six years ago. This was the same Belushi project that Emile Hirsch uh, was going to star in as as Belushi. Um, it's from Steve Conrad, who's a great writer. I think they got David Frankel to direct. He's He did The Devil Wears Prada, and he did Collateral Beauty. That was his last mu- uh, movie. So he's ki- he was kind of like off in director's jail for a little bit, starting to come back out. He's doing the Anna Delvey series uh, on Netflix. Um, and so, yeah, this I think that this makes sense. Coming off a, a huge flop like that, um, to to go do an indie movie and a movie an indie movie that could have some actual quality. Uh, by all accounts, Alex Brightman is, he looks a lot like Belushi, and he, by all accounts, he's a really good actor. Um, that that could be a really interesting project. Um, you know, I don't think that I never saw the Michael Chiklis Belushi movie, so there's like this whole generation I think out there who who maybe don't appreciate his, his comic genius and, obvi- and and also the tragedy surrounding his death uh, the way that they that they should. So I'm looking forward to this Belushi project. I hope that it gets off the ground. I don't know uh, who's actually going to be paying for it, but we'll see. Um, while I was writing up this Belushi story, God, I was just like so focused on it. Uh, I'd probably spent a couple hours writing it, so I was right near the end. And, uh, and right before I, I published it, I decided to check my email and boom, there's an email uh, waiting for me and Kroll, uh, confirming everything that we'd been holding on the Home Alone movie on Disney Plus, and I just didn't see it in time. You know, there's the, the email was like, "Hey, can can you guys post it at four? You've both been sitting on this." And I saw it at three fifty eight, and I was like, "I'm not going to have a story ready in time." I called Justin immediately, tried to get the the embargo pushed back, and it just you know didn't happen quick enough. So. Kroll, Kroll got me on that one fair and square. I should have checked my email. Just uh, some tough communication. But Home Alone. And I don't know if it'll ultimately even be called Home Alone, although I don't know why you would make this movie if it wasn't. Um, the, you know, Home Alone, there's a remake, a very loose remake, of course, uh, in the works at Disney+. Plus. Um, uh, the, the Borat writer is, is directing it. Uh, Mikey Day from SNL is, is writing it with Streeter Seidel. So... It's about, and, I, and I've talked about this before, you know, this is old news if you've been listening to the Snyder Cut or, or reading my writing, but it's about two parents who take on a little boy who has stolen something from them. He's like their neighbor. So he, he has, the little boy, you know, is, is a bit of a menace. He steals something from this couple, and then they have to go to his place and get it back. So it's very different than two, you know, thieves I don't even know if the kid is being left alone, although I would assume he is. I don't know if the parents have kids of their own who then they have to ignore during the holidays because they're preoccupied with this mission. I don't really know any of that. Uh, I know that Disney had some some casting. They had set their sights pretty high, and they wound up with uh, with Ellie Kemper and Rob Delaney, two performers who I like. I like Rob Delaney a lot. He's a, he's a great stand-up. I love Ellie Kemper's work on The Office and in Bridesmaids, but like... You know they're not really uh, movie stars, um, but you know they they probably came cheap. You know I don't I don't know if Disney Plus is really in the habit of shelling out for movie stars. Uh, I mean when we think about it, what have they they've got Little Women with Tessa Thompson, Justin Theroux. They did uh, uh, Noel with Anna Kendrick and Bill Hader. So you know they're not ready to sort of pay for the. A-listers yet. It's more about the concepts. And, and, you know, if you throw Home Alone on anything, people are going to click on it. 
what I did really like about this was uh, Archie Yates, um, who is the the friend in Jojo Rabbit. Again, I don't know if he's the lead. He kind of screams like sidekick to me, but but he was really good as Jojo's buddy. Um, I still would have loved to have seen Julia Butters in this role. Maybe she was a little too old for it. I think that they should have done a young girl just to, if nothing else, distinguish itself from the Macaulay Culkin movies. Because um, now Archie Yates, you know, everyone's going to be saying, well, he was no Macaulay Culkin. You know, I just thought Julia Butters, th- th- that's a, a lightning bolt performance in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I, if I was an executive, I'd just be shoehorning her into every movie, throwing money at her because um, she could be the next real like child movie star. I thought she was that good. Home Alone, though, ugh, just one of my favorite movies. If you haven't had a chance, check out the movies that made us on Netflix. They do a great episode on Home Alone, Ghostbusters, Die Hard, yada, yada, yada. Uh, and speaking of, of Ghostbusters, by the way, there was a new trailer that dropped for Ghostbusters Afterlife. I think that the kids are, are pretty clearly going to be uh, Egon's grandkids. Just look at the glasses and the hair. And, of course, there's that one shot where you see Spangler's Ghostbusters outfit. It's on. It's a brilliant way of, of getting him involved, you know, in into in the franchise again, honoring his memory. Because I'm pretty sure everyone will be back. Dan, uh, Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray, Ernie Hudson, Annie Potts. No Rick Moranis. But I'm telling you, I am holding out hope for a Rick Moranis return in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. And that Josh Gad movie. I think if anybody could... You know, maybe coax uh, Rick Moranis out of retirement because there may be some weird bad blood with the Ghostbusters crew. I, I don't know if he's still in touch with all those guys, you know, if they're still friendly and everything's hunky-dory. But if Rick Moranis ever did come back, I kind of – I know Ghostbusters is like the big classic movie, but it's not like that was his movie, you know. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids was his movie. If Rick Moranis does come back for anything, I hope it's that Disney Plus movie uh, or that Disney movie Shrunk with Josh Gad. I like the Ghostbusters Afterlife trailer. They didn't try to do too much. You know, they didn't throw a zillion ghosts at you. They didn't introduce, like, a villain. Um, it was, like, a, a real tease, and I and I liked it a lot. I liked everything we saw with, with Finn Wolfhard driving the Ecto-1. I liked that it was just a little bit quieter. Um, what else? God, there's a new Griswold series coming from Johnny Galecki on, on HBO Max. I mean, that seems like a fun concept uh, to explore. What are, what are the Griswolds like when they're not on a crazy vacation? It, you know, I mean, you can still have a vacation series or a three-episode arc or whatever. But, yeah, it would kind of be nice to get to know uh, Clark and the rest of the family um, when they're not in the station wagon. Uh, Alex Ross Perry directing The Dark Half. I can't say I like... This guy's work. Um, I wasn't a big Listen Up Philip guy, and that was about an author. This is about an author. Uh, and I don't know if he's quite dark enough for the for the dark half. I didn't see Her Smell. I will say that, but I don't know that you could get me to watch that movie. Uh, it just doesn't, from what I gathered, it, w- it would not be for me. But here's the thing. Low-key, the dark half is one of my, fa- it, it, it's one of my favorite King books, favorite adaptations. Like I, I like the movie. It's definitely a movie that could be remade. It's not a classic like like The Shining or Carrie or, you know. The movie's not quite on that level. So I'm down to see Hollywood take another stab at it. I probably wouldn't have chosen Alex Ross Perry, but, you know, whatever. I'm down to give him the benefit of the doubt here. I just don't want, you know, Jason Schwartzman cast as Thad Beaumont or whatever his name was. 
Um, God, I love Timothy Hutton in, in, in that movie doing a dual role thing. Yeah, it was, that was fun. Um, if you have like the dark half is really maybe the Stephen King book that I have the most like fond memories of reading. Oddly enough, I read it while listening to Creed's first album. So anytime that I think the dark half, I think of, you know, that first Creed album or anytime I hear that first Creed album, which is just all the time I'm listening to Creed in my car all the time. No. But uh, anytime I hear it, I do think of the dark half. Just a weird, you know, I don't know if there are things like that out there for you, books, movies that you guys sort of put together. Um, Disney would like to buy James Bond. Yeah, no shit. So would everybody else. Great. Disney has the deep pockets to do it. Uh, and Bond is a theatrical thing. You're never going to see Bond on, a, on, you know, being acquired by Amazon or fucking Netflix. So if it's not Disney, it's Warner Brothers. And if it's not either of those, then they're probably just going to keep doing it on a, on a movie by movie basis. Kill Bill 3. Quentin Tarantino's talking about this again. You can ignore everything. I, I don't know that I see Uma Thurman uh, coming back to do this at her age. You know, it's a very physically demanding role. I don't know if what their relationship is like anymore. Uh, I think this is all just, you know, talk to get Quentin more buzz on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, there were new trailers for The Grudge this week. That looks kind of crazy. Like, very, very violent, chopped Fingers, sawings of heads, decomposed bodies. It looked, it looked like my kind of movie, yeah, quite frankly. But I also, you know, I'm very wary of Sam Sam Raimi's output of late. I know he's just a producer on this one, and, and it was directed by Nick Pesci, who did the excellent The Eyes of My Mother. But I definitely am a little worried about this Grudge movie, which has been bouncing around the calendar. Uh, speaking of genre films, Promising Young Woman dropped a trailer. That is from Emerald Fennel, who did uh, Killing Eve. She's a director on that show. This is the Carrie Mulligan movie. And I had some people, I noticed people questioning what the premise of this movie is. I know a little bit too much, so I don't want to spoil it. I think it's pretty self-explanatory. Something, you know, terrible happened to Carrie Mulligan when she was in med school or whatever. And it threw her, you know, off track. Whether it happened to her or a friend of hers, whatever. She's out for revenge. And so what she does is she goes to these bars and she pretends to get trashed. And then she waits for some nice guy to come over and ask her to, you know, can he help her get home okay? And rather than do the right thing, these guys inevitably either, you know, wind, worm their way into her place or take them back to their places. Uh, and, it, you know, then, then she basically comes clean and is like, you know, what are you doing? You're try- you brought me back here. You've come into my home. You know, you're trying to be nice, but now you're on top of me. You're kissing me. This is, I clearly can't consent to anything, and, and I think that she starts to teach these, these so-called nice guys a lesson. Um, and you know, if you look at the cast, you know, not a very threatening cast. It, it's guys like McLovin uh, and um, and the sorry Bo Burnham, uh, and you know, I think it just goes to show that even nice guys have a dark side. So I, I'm really looking forward to this Carrie Mulligan thing. I, I want to see a dark side of her. Uh, it's just a juicy, juicy premise, and I, and I hope I'm up at Sundance to catch that first screening. Um, there was a new trailer for this movie, Swallow, with Haley Bennett. This is about a housewife who has this odd compulsion to swallow things that are not necessarily edible. Marbles, dirt, who knows what kind of crazy shit this, this woman is eating by the end of the movie. Uh, but it, it has been garnering acclaim and awards you know, at festivals for like the last year, I feel like. This is definitely an indie to keep an eye on in 2020. Uh, Haley Bennett is supposed to be really fantastic as well. 
Uh, Marvel TV was absorbed. No surprise there. Kevin Feige's calling the shots now, so goodbye to Jeff Loeb and everything. Uh, you know, all those shows like S.H.I.E.L.D. And, you know, Kevin's been very clear going forward. Everything you see on Disney Plus, those will be the first real small screen uh, things to have connections to, to the larger MCU. Netflix came out with numbers for The Irishman. They say 17 million people watched the first week, 40 million will watch in the first month or something like that. Blah, 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 blah. Who cares? None of this matters. You know, none of it. It doesn't matter how many people are watching something because by their metric, all they have to do is watch 70% and they count it. That's not finishing a movie to me. No one is paying, like, they're, they're paying a subscription fee, but no one is paying individually, you know, to watch The Irishman on Netflix. So, you know, when something's just free and it's sitting there and it's an added value to what you're getting every month, I think it's just very hard to, to say, you know, was this a smart investment? Because I, I don't think that it is. I, I think that in the end, between between what it costs to make The Irishman and what it costs to campaign for awards, I don't think that, that Netflix will look back on this as a, as a necessarily worthwhile investment. Um, it doesn't mean that, you know, movies that they make in the 50 or $75 million range, uh, that they don't spend another 40 to 75 million on uh, campaigning for awards. Like it, it doesn't mean that those won't be seen as worthy investments, but I mean, like even bird box, like that was a worthy investment. If you've got 80 million people watching, that wasn't a super expensive movie. Like the, the Irishman costs probably three times as much as bird box. Uh, and it's probably being watched by half as many people. So I, I, I like the numbers, obviously that they weren't bad, but I don't think that they were impressive as Netflix uh, or whoever made them sound like. Uh, and I think that as a media member, you have to take all this stuff with a certain grain of salt, a certain sense of uh, skepticism. Um, Wonder Woman 84 trailer. I thought that looked fun. Patty Jenkins knows what she's doing. Gal Gadot is just absolute perfect casting. I'm excited to see, uh, Pedro Pascal as Maxwell Lord. Still haven't seen much from Kristen Wiig as Cheetah, but I imagine uh, we're still pretty far out from release, and we're gonna. There's plenty of time uh, to do those reveals. Uh, Aladdin. Me, Billy Magnuson gets an Aladdin spinoff. I didn't see Aladdin. I guess he played some goofy white prince character, maybe. Uh, so Billy came to Disney with an idea. And Disney said, sure, we'll develop it. Um, I don't know if there are actual writers on board, but that's how this stuff happens. It gets leaked to the trades, and, and um, you know, I, I don't know if that's a project that they're real seriously uh, considering. And if they are, it, w- it would probably just be for Disney+. Plus, you know, because they they just need content. They just need, oh, what, what thing can people recognize? And, oh, they, they recognize this character from Aladdin. Well, a billion people saw Aladdin, so maybe they'll feel like, well, we need to continue the story of Aladdin since we're already invested in it. Um, uh, you know, and I don't know what the status is with Aladdin too. It sounds like Mina Masood has plenty of time to shoot it though, because he says he can't get an audition. Can't get an audition since Aladdin came out, bro. I've had a lot of people in the town, uh, in the in the rep community, uh, question that. They say I don't know if that's entirely true. Um, if it is, I mean, part of that is on studios and networks and producers. Like this guy is the face of a billion dollar movie. How have you not reached out to him? He's a handsome guy. He, he has he has some TV show that's coming up, but I don't. Again, I don't know if that audition was necessarily after 
Aladdin came out because it only came out six months ago, and TV shows probably take a while to get to air. Um, you know, maybe people thought he was busy. Whatever the case, some of the blame has got to be on his agents. How do the agents not get this guy an audition? Like, look at look look at them, Mina. You know, look at your manager. Uh, Peter Sarsgaard cast in the Batman. Not sure what the role was going to be. Initial speculation was Harvey Dent. Maggie Gyllenhaal posted that photo of him doing like a half shave. Uh, they, they are married. She was in The Dark Knight as well. So that, that's kind of interesting. Um, so is is he playing Harvey Dent or is he playing this this uh, other Peter character who I guess Matt, Matthew Reeves, uh, ever, anytime he has posted a casting announcement on Twitter, he has said hello to the person by their, by their character's name. Uh, so even though Peter Sarsgaard and, and this potential character do share a, a name, if he is in fact playing that character, uh, like you know, people have said, well, why would Reeves break that pattern now? So they don't think he's necessarily playing Harvey Dent. He, they think he's playing that uh, corrupt cop Peter, whatever, Peter Grobar, or something. Either way, Peter Sarsgaard is a great actor. It's another feather in the cap for the Batman. Um, but still very interested in seeing who's going to be playing Harvey Dent, if Harvey Dent is in the movie. Uh, there was a Free Guy trailer with Ryan Reynolds. Like, this is an interesting premise about, like, a video game character who becomes sentient and realizes that he's just, like, a side character in a video game. So he decides to, you know, start making his own decisions and, and messes everything up. Don't think the trailer really worked for me, though. I think it's a very high concept that, that may be a very tricky sell. Uh, and I don't think I love Jodie Comer in this trailer either. Um, yeah. You know what? My rumor of the week may, be, may involve Jodie Comer, so uh, we'll, we'll double back on that at the end of the show. Jason Bateman directing uh, the New Line thriller Shut In. This kind of had like a Joel Edgerton in the gift vibe to me. Um, not, not necessarily the story, uh, which is about a woman who's taken captive by a violent ex, which puts her two kids in a very dangerous position. So she's trying to, you know, get back to them and, and protect them, rescue them, whatever. I've heard about this script for like the last year. It comes from a first time screenwriter, Melanie Toast, who's a family uh, woman out in Texas. She's got a husband and kids and, you know, really no Hollywood connections, but she uploaded her script to it was either the blacklist or she was discovered on the blood list. Either way, she got signed. Uh, Dallas Sonnier at Cinestate sort of snapped up the script. He had planned to do it as an indie uh, and then teamed up with Roy Lee and Dan Farah. And they said, no, 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 no. Like, they're, they're, this has real potential. Um, let's try to shop it to studios. And there was a, a bidding war, New Line one. And, yeah, now it sounds like Jason Bateman's going to do it. Jason Bateman has close ties to New Line. He was in Game Night. He was going to do uh, direct the Clue movie, but I think Clue – like, you know, it didn't line up with his Ozark schedule. And again, this is a guy who just won an Emmy for directing Ozark. He beat the Game of Thrones directors, for Christ's sake. Uh, so he's very committed to that show. I think Shut In is, is a smaller, more contained movie, uh, with, you know, th that he could make it, uh, in a lot less time than, than Clue. Um, so, you know, hopefully that comes together. Uh, God. Will Poulter dropping out of Lord of the Rings. Good for him. I feel like this is such a low-rent cast that they're assembling for, like, this huge movie. It's like they spent all their money on acquiring the rights, and then and then obviously they have to go make the series. I don't know how much money is left over for talent. Um, I just – if I was Will Poulter, yeah, I don't necessarily think I'd want to 
be spending years of my life with with you know working on a show where it's like don't you want to be like around other a-listers i mean i know game of thrones wasn't like populated by a-listers either and that those people became stars but i just haven't liked what i've heard much from from lord of the rings uh i think i think the development of that one's just all over the place um a couple of other announcements here and there uh we dropped an up and comer of the month column uh that is going to be it is julia fox from uncut gems who i thought was just real and raw and uh, authentic in that movie she plays adam sandler's saleswoman turned mistress um which prevent provides uh presents sorry kind of like a me too issue like this is a woman who's sleeping with her boss who's then putting her up in his swanky manhattan apartment um but but julia didn't see the character as a as a victim at all she saw her like a as a survivor who's just doing what she's got to do and it was just a really great interview this woman has lived a hell of a life and she's only 29 years old she's not even 30 she has she's an acclaimed artist and photographer like that's what all the press was about um and uh that, that i was reading up on her beforehand and she had her own fashion line she was a teenage dominatrix like she has really she has some crazy stories and i know she's she's working on some scripts to try to tell those um so i i thought she did a great job as an actress but i'm also looking forward to to seeing her you know evolve as a filmmaker she said she really looks up to margot robbie and loves what she's doing with her producing career so maybe we'll see that out of julia fox but go to collider.com and make sure you read that uh, while you're there, check out our deep fake with Leonardo DiCaprio in the Star Wars movies. It was crazy. Our own uh, Frank Lucatardo, he did uh, he does all these deep fakes, and he put basically Leonardo DiCaprio in the Star Wars uh, franchise as, as Anakin Skywalker. <laughs> I have to make sure I get that right. And it was pretty fucking cool. Like I thought it was seamless. Some of this stuff, it really could have been Leo quite easily. Um, R.I.P. to Danny Aiello. Danny Aiello, who's in Moonstruck, and he plays Sal in Do the Right Thing. Just, you know, a great character actor. Um, never worked with Scorsese, though. I think he always had those that those regrets. Like, uh, you know, he's the only Italian-American who hadn't uh, worked with, with, the, with the master. Um, but the, what all, you know, the movie that I will always sort of remember and cherish Danny Aiello for, as much as I love Do the Right Thing, is the professional. He is uh, Leon's handler, who Natalie Portman comes to at the end of the movie. And I just, I love that quote where he's like, I ain't got no work for a 12-year-old kid, so get it out of your goddamn head. It's over. The game's over. Leon is dead. You hear me? Great, great scene. Uh, Dan Aiello will be missed. I can't remember the last time I saw him up on the big screen, but he just, uh, he always had a little flavor. I would like to do my top ten Sandler movies, but we're out of time, so that's that's too bad. Maybe I'll do that next week. Um, and you know what? For Rumor of the Week, God, there were so many to choose from. I'll just do one that I don't think I can get in that much trouble for. Uh, the Rumor of the Week this week, <sighs> this Mad Max stuff, right? I think that you'd get a Furiosa movie. I just don't know whether Charlize Theron is going to, would be Furiosa, like... I I don't know how that would work. Um, I don't know if they would do a prequel or sequel. I don't know what the hell they have in mind for for the next Mad Max movie. But if but I, let's just say I've heard I've heard Jodie Comer's name floated about for Mad Max. Um, 
I mean, obviously she plays a badass assassin on, on Killing Eve. Uh, very different than Charlize. But I don't know. Again, this project's a ways off. George Miller still has to do his like 3,000 years of longing project with Idris Elba and Tilda Swinton. But I just I wouldn't be surprised if, if Jodie Comer somehow, some way, found her way into the next Mad Max movie. Um, we're going to end it with some uh, quick reviews. Six Underground I saw this week, the Michael Bay movie. It was bad. I mean, there's some really, really cool action scenes in it. But what a terrible script. It's such a fun concept. Like, Ryan Reynolds is this billionaire who assembles this team of specialists to go after bad guys. But then they just don't do anything fun with that premise. And it's about, like, stopping or, like, starting a revolution in the Middle East. It was so stupid. Getting into the elevator after that movie with all the other critics, I was like, this guy has made some classics. I am a Michael Bay fan. The Rock, Armageddon. Uh, bad boys these are fucking great movies i don't know what this guy is smoking these days like that you know 600 grand is not among them i really like 13 hours too so like i he can do stuff like that but this 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 was like a mishmash of of those worlds and it didn't work at all 1917 i saw thought it was good i mean that was very good didn't think it was great don't think it's like a, a best picture winner it just didn't quite have the emotion that i you know, kind of needed and, and expected out of a war movie. Um, it is really an exercise. It's an achievement. It's like gravity. Um, where, yeah, there's, there is emotion in gravity. There is emotion in 1917. You may well up at one or two moments, but it never really soared for me emotionally uh, a lot like gravity. Um, so, yeah, technical exercises. Little Women I saw last night. It was fine. It was good. Everybody was good. Sersha, Florence Pugh, Meryl, Laura Dern, like, they were all good. Emma Watson didn't really do much for me. Um, and I thought Timmy was really good, Timmy Chalamet. It would be so weird if he was, like, the only person recognized in that ensemble if he managed to get, like, a supporting actor nomination and everybody else got blanked. His performance is kind of just being, like, I saw him singled out in early reviews. People really liked what he did as Laurie. But in the awards conversation, he's just been, like, completely forgotten about. And I wonder if that could change once more people see the movie. And, or, you know, I, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, I also saw Clemency. That was really good. Aldous Hodge, uh, Alfred Woodard, I thought, were both excellent. Um, the tr uh, God, I'm hearing great things about The Outsider. I haven't seen it yet. And I will be embargoed once I eventually do see it. But as of now, I'm just a guy who's seen some trailers and talked to some people who have seen some screeners. And I hear it's awesome. Uh, you, I'm embargoed on second season. But next week, I'll be able to talk about that. John Mulraney, Mul uh, John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch. Make sure you check out that special, uh, which is coming soon, maybe a week or two. It should be out in time for Christmas. But that's a, a fun children's special that he did. In the Heights dropped a trailer I thought was really good. Um, that looks like a lot of fun from Lin Manuel Miranda. And then the the movie I'm obsessed with seeing right now is Don't Fuck with Cats, about the hunt for Luca Magnata. Uh, just like a wild serial killer story that I guess all started with him uploading a video of torturing cats. That's going to be on Netflix in a few more days. So uh, stay tuned to my Twitter feed for my take on that one. That'll do it for this episode, which is already starting to run long. I'm sorry about that, guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks for uh, staying with me after all those rants. And, and I know you may have a difference of opinion. 
And that's fine. You may think that women do need their own best director category. You may think it is horrible what, what Clint Eastwood and Billy Ray have done to the memory of Kathy Scruggs. But you know what? You need to hear that there are other takes out there because I, I just haven't seen th- these opposing point of views put out there much in, in mainstream media. It's because people are afraid. Um, people are afraid to, to speak certain truths, to to do anything that would make – you know, someone who feel who felt marginalized, like make them feel like they don't matter. I'm not trying to make it make them feel like that, but I do think that you know, certain certain filmmakers, certain journalists, they embarrass themselves this week uh, with some of their just ill-conceived, poorly thought out uh, takes that that may come back to burn them in the in the long run. You know, we'll see. Anyways, all I can do is speak my truth. You've just listened to it here on the Snyder Cut. Uh, Thank you for listening. Leave a comment. Make sure to subscribe. Tell your grandmother. Tell your cousin. All that good stuff. We will be back next Friday. I'm going to try to have uh, some top ten lists, uh, top ten of the year, top ten of the decade, that kind of stuff, because I think it's our last show of the year next week on the 20th. Anyway, you guys, have a happy Friday. Make sure you see Uncut Gems. Let me know what you think about Julia Fox, and have a great weekend. It's that little chico pitbull, Mr. 305, but it said Mr. Worldwide, and I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, From Negative to Positive, brought to you by my friends over at State Farm. I believe that to have success, you got to play the game, so that the game doesn't play you. You know, the biggest risk you take is not taking one. It's very important that you make sure that you make the most out of your money, especially when it comes to insurance. State Farm offers surprisingly great rates. They have great agents standing by helping you personalize your coverage. All this is backed up by award-winning, easy-to-use technology. It's a great price with an even greater service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. People notice a healthy smile, but maybe you have tooth sensitivity, bleeding gums, or acid-weakened enamel. Sensodyne, Paradontax, and Pronamel are trusted specialty toothpastes created to help improve your oral health. For tooth sensitivity, choose Sensodyne. Bleeding gums, get Paradontax. For acid-weakened enamel, Pronamel is the toothpaste for you. Sensodyne, Paradontax, and Pronamel. Trusted specialty toothpaste to help bring home your healthy smile. Visit Ibotta to earn cash back.